Welcome to the 152nd episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 14 years to the day since the IPL began, with Brendan McCullum launching it in style with 158 off 73 balls. With an estimated 400 million people set to watch this year, it appears to have worked out pretty well. When the IPL was um, initiated, it's it kind of very much set its stall at world domination. And I wonder whether back then, if you'd said to the organisers, 14 years time, 400 million people watching, that they would have said, yep, that's a good result, or whether... I mean, I don't really have a... I mean, that's a, it's a hell of a lot of people. I don't really have a gauge on how many people that is compared to existing kind of TV audiences. Um, but I yeah. wonder whether it's kind of, you know, seen as a... Looking back 14 years, whether it's kind of seen as a success in terms of the audience. I, I think what's interesting is at the time, it all felt new and brash. And I, I think, frankly, I'd admit, like maybe lots of English cricket fans slightly looked down on it. And yep. now it feels just such an established part, part of, the of the schedule. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, and actually, yes, not, not just part of the furniture, probably like the immovable bit of the, the furniture. furniture. Yes, exactly. Everything yeah. else everything else moves, moves around it. Um, so the hot news the hot news the news hot off the press um for this week has been joe root's resignation as england captain a couple of days ago now um it seems that every single um not only journalist in the firmament is having their say about this but any anyone with a with a twitter account is 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 firing forth um no one has called me to ask for my for my opinion um don't know about you andy but where what what are your thoughts on this whole saga well as a podcaster, yes, we spend a lot more time talking about the cricket of the past than the cricket of the present. And one thing that struck me is how it seemed impossible for anyone to have this conversation without reference to history. So it's been interesting to see how many of the candidates or suggested candidates are players who are not currently part of the England setup. Yes. And that really seems like a throwback, whether yep. it be to a sort of Brearley, a Chris Cowdery, that the specialist captain idea, you bring someone in specifically for their captaincy. Exactly, exactly. And I I think what I found quite interesting is that a lot of the former players, um, the Athertons of this world, have been quite strong in saying, well, look, you have to, your place in the team has to be secure before you can be captain. But actually, there seems something amongst us fans who are quite almost romantically attracted to that idea of the specialist captain. I'm also struck by how much of the debate about Ben Stokes ends up being about historic examples. So Mm. we all sort of know that by virtue of his stable place in the team, he's the kind of obvious candidate. But as fans, we also have these ghosts of Flintoff and Botham yes. hanging over him. You know, and this Peterson. is what happens when you oh, quite well. Yeah, this is what happens when you give when you give the role to the sort of all star, charismatic, um, yeah, all, all round attacking player. Yeah. yeah, and and the last historic actual example I want I want to sort of throw in is. Um, I've been quite intrigued by this idea um, of of Stuart Broad coming in as an interim captain. I think his personality would make it very interesting. Um, But I was struck by the fact that John Embury was the last um, sort of all-out bowling England captain, and I think in his case even quite briefly. And that's going back almost 34 years. Um, And it's interesting, again, how once you do that, (laughs) once you leave a gap of 34 years, the whole concept of a bowler becoming captain starts to seem sort of completely improbable. It does, although, of course, the Australians have kind of recently brought brought that back into into fashion. With some success. With with some considerable success, as as we know, to our much much to our cost as as England England supporters, I think there's another um, kind of overarching question around this as well, which is 
um, this kind of idea of um, you know what a, what a captain should be and whether the idea of a captain has been devalued over time by this sense of you pick a team and then you pick a captain out of them does that necessarily lead you with someone with the necessary leadership leadership skills or are you just picking the best of an available bunch based on the you know on the on on the playing ability and i think that it is a really it's interesting to see and i wonder how far the you know people who are actually making the decisions are considering the idea of bringing someone in from the outside purely based on their captaincy ability but it is interesting the extent to which that is a debate more broadly by which acknowledges firstly the fact that you know there aren't many players in the England team at the moment who actually have their you know shirts nailed to their back as it were you know Mm -hmm. particularly with Anderson and and Broad being left out of the West Indies you know kind of no one's safe um, in a way Root was really kind of one, one of the only other ones we don't have a keeper for instance really who's who's locked in for the next little while. But then also this question of how important is it that we have a captain who really is a, is a captain on merit, not a not a player on merit and a, and a captain by, by default too. No, and I think this idea as well about a lot of the players having come into the England setup without having had county experience. So I, I've seen that there's been a, a vocal sort of Twitter call for James Vince, who mm. I think will always have a fan club because, you know, he's a wonderful batsman yep. to watch yep. for all his, his slight travise of actually making things work at test level. But, you know, he's someone who's got years of captaincy behind him. So, yeah, I, I think this will... Um, well, I say the ECB are going to have to get to grips with these challenges. That there's not much of an ECB hierarchy at the moment, and that's been one of the things that you've been you've been sort of digging. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know. Talking of histo- historical parallels, I certainly can't think of a time when within a major Test playing nation setup there have been so many positions vacant at the same time. Um, you know, usually there is this kind of sense of inevitability, particularly when it comes to coaching jobs or some of those kind of backroom admin jobs that no one really knows what they, you know, that have vague titles that no one quite knows what they do, but they seem to wield quite a lot of power. There seems to be a, a kind of, you know, fairly Victorian sense that it's passed on to the next next person in line and there's an inevitability to who that person is. There's a kind of heir apparent sense to the way that these uh, these positions are um are handed down I think though with all of those positions being vacant and Joe Root's resignation over the last couple of days that the next chapter of English cricket is going to be fascinating and we've been talking for a while about or a lot of people have been talking about the need for a real shake up in English cricket I don't think anyone would seriously have proposed get rid of the entire leadership structure and start again but one way or other that's what's ended up Mm. happening not by design but by, by happenstance and though and although Rob Key is now in position as, as managing director announced yesterday, day before, whenever it was, um, I think that it's actually really good that we're able to have these debates about what kind of person we want for different positions. Because rather than just shuffling shuffling the next person in because there's, there's, they're seen to have earned it, I think it actually you know, leads to some, some kind of honest um, introspection around the direction that the setup needs to take into the future and then you put the people in to, you know, to, to, to match that, that sense of strategy and that sense of direction. I think the key thing is a proper process, isn't it? I think again and again, mm. fans have been left frustrated by exactly what you described, that sort of next cab off the rank phenomenon. And what you actually need is a really painstaking process and it takes as long as it needs to take. And even if that makes the start of the English summer a bit difficult because you're working with interim position, I think it's a price worth paying. Um, and I think that the thing you'd hope to bear in mind here is that 
these are still very attractive jobs. I mean, I've I've read yeah. some people making the interesting argument that, you know, the IPL is hard to compete to with going back to the start mm -hmm. of the show. You know, you can get a lot of money in a short period of time and it, the England job is tough. You know, you're traveling around the world. It's, it's very all consuming, yeah. but it's still the England job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. it, 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 it's as bad as it, it, it's about as good as cricket gets. So, so if you're if you're a betting man, who would you say was going to be the next captain? Um, I think I think it'll be Stokes, um, but I have yes, as I've as I've sort of revealed earlier, I'm I'm warming um, to the um, the broad interim option just because I think at the very least it would be uh, it would be very entertaining. Uh, what, what what about you? Given I, I, I can't I can't I can't see past um, Stokes in terms of where I think they'll go rather than where I'd want them to go. I th I think that bringing having dropped Broad to then bring him back. Mm. I think would just be sort of nothing sort of short of confusing in many ways and I think that they'll think the, the thought will be that some kind of talisman needs to needs to take forward the next chapter with the New Zealand it's New Zealand up next isn't it mm -hmm. New Zealand test starting very shortly um, and so I think I think Stokes will be the man you end up asking a lot of these talismans though don't you <laughs> From the archives, and in this, the 152nd episode uh, of Reverse Threat Radio, Andy is going to be telling us about the history of something I've never heard of. Well, I've never heard of either Sir Walter Lawrence or the Sir Walter Lawrence Trophy. So I hadn't either. I, I came across this in an article and was, was slightly staggered to see that this trophy of such longevity was something that had never come across before. But Sir Walter Lawrence was a builder and a cricket fanatic. And in 1934, he decided that the way or one of the ways he was going to contribute to the game was to launch an award for the fastest hundred scored in an English season in a first class innings. Now, speed was to be measured by time, not the number of deliveries. And in 1934, Kent's Frank Woolley became the first winner with a breezy 63-minute century that Wisden said contained dazzling stroke play all around the wicket. I like the fact that the nature of this award seems to very clearly show Sir Walter's preferences. Um, to say that uh, it seems to be the, the award of a man who wants to see attacking cricket. He wants batsmen to take risks. Uh, and I, I think it's interesting because it actually feels an award quite ahead of its time. This was still an era where, yes, you were expected to entertain, but perhaps most of all, you were expected to value your wicket. Um, I'm interested as well. I've always been interested, just as a bit of an aside, in the difference between measuring innings in terms of minutes versus balls and what the thinking was around that because minutes obviously varies you know someone strains you know strains a calf muscle and then suddenly you've added 10 minutes to the innings versus you know over rates whatever it just has always seemed like a kind of very arbitrary mm. way of measuring things compared to, to compared to balls and what but one thing that it does just to to draw this back rather than going off on my mad mad tangent <laughs> one thing that it does demonstrate with something like this is that when someone hits a century in 63 minutes yes of course it depends on the batsman but it also depends on the bowling it also depends mm -hmm. on the bowlers actually getting on with it. You know, it's actually a kind of two-part effort. It requires both teams to be kind of playing the kind of cricket that lends itself to this. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point because you'd actually say now with slower over rates, a quick hundred by minute is, is probably yep. harder than it has been yep. to achieve. Yep. Um, you, you, we'll, we'll get to this as we progress, but it's it's exactly a, some, a problem that the trophy has struggled with, that it has gone back and forth between this idea of minutes and balls. I, I Wondering about it, I was thinking that in, in sort of modern day cricket parlance, we tend to only really think about time for sort of um, innings of endurance, really. Yes. We sort yep. of say some, so-and-so survived for eight through hours. The innings, yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. To draw yeah. the test, you you'd survive for eight hours. But if you exactly, score, yeah, exactly. But not for not for, not for pace. Um, so Sir Walter passed away in 1939, and his son Guy was not a cricket fan, and the award promptly slipped into abeyance um, until 1965. At which point, Guy's son-in-law Brian Thornton inherited the trophy, which uh, I would suggest you look up on Google because it's a rather a rather fine-looking trophy. It's a bit like the FA Cup. Um, and relaunched it with support from the MCC. I found this really interesting because you can't really claim that the trophy had any history at this point. You know, created in 1934, mm. slipped into abeyance by in you know by the start of World War Two, and then um, the best a 26 year gap, and yet clearly MCC and others felt it was worth sh- saving. But, but but isn't also this just the the history of of cricket in the 20th century in England that kind of rich people with social power I mean I, I assume that Sir Walter Lawrence knew people in some high places mm. um, but I assume he had quite a lot of money as well and therefore you know there's, there are so many instances of people in that kind of situation being able to make the game of cricket in different ways their sort of play thing but you're right when it then comes down to the grandson um brian thornton who sounds like a more kind of down-to-earth fellow than sir walter lawrence you do wonder what it is that that, Mm. exactly got everyone on board well perhaps like any good campaign if you you know speak to the right people get the right passion um you know you're you're absolutely right though in terms of you know for sir walter his his money was well spent in the extent to which it's preserved some sort of legacy because it's quite hard to find much else out about him as I tried he he's described mm. in several places as a master builder which is a rather sort of wonderful phrase but I, I'm sort of it, it's still it, I don't think it means, means you get your hands in any cement though does it no I think, I think it still means that you're, yeah, you're directing operations of, from, with a cigar in your hand I imagine yeah it, but it's nice though isn't it I'd rather be a master builder than a sort of property developer master yeah, builder sounds rather true. wonderful anyway um, back to his trophy so it's so it's back <laughs> It's back in 1966, and at this point, the award seems to have a bit of an identity crisis. Um, At first, it was awarded for the fastest 100 by an English batter in Test cricket, with speed now measured by deliveries, and Ken Barrington promptly won it. Um, Then in 1970, it was confusingly presented to Geoffrey Boycott for the most meritorious innings of the England versus the rest of the world series and this was ditched after a single season I think presumably because the whole concept I think of most meritorious promptly uh, I think is likely to cause confusion and, and, and disagreement. Well anything and that's kind of again... subjective and it just doesn't doesn't mean anything and it also reminds me of the school prize that we had which was the Patrick J. Emery prize for persistent hard work you know the idea of meritorious has nothing sexy about meritorious um, and this is clearly a trophy that wants to capture something about the pizzazz mm. of, of cricket whereas meritorious is kind of what do you say thank you to the bowler after each ball or something you know yeah 
and it, and I think I'm glad that it went back in 1971 to being the fastest hundred in an English first-class innings. Partly because it also feels to me, I, I like the idea that the trophy looks at the broader first-class game. I think you know, Test cricketers get enough recognition as it is. Um, so back to your, your earlier point. In 1985, it changed back from time to deliveries, and this time it finally stayed. So you know. It's interesting how long that persisted, the the measurement by time. In 2008, the trophy had what was probably its greatest, uh, most dramatic innovation in that it opened up to domestic limited overs competition. Now, you can see this in two ways, really. I think partly you might feel that by 2008, we're already a few years into the 2020 revolution, and it might just have felt archaic to kind of not include those games. But there's a little part of me that thinks it's sad, because one thing I quite like about focusing on specifically the longer form of the game is you're rewarding quick scores made in a not quick format. And I, I quite yeah. like that part of the award. It's it's not a level playing field anymore. You know that mm. no one playing four-day cricket is ever going to win that award again as soon as you open it to 2020. It's the simple reality of it. Yeah. No, no. It, 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 it's, it's an interesting... It, it was a change they obviously felt to make. And I guess like any award, you need to, to sort of maintain maintain relevance. Mm. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right that the, the bias has swung very much towards... Um, the limited overs form although I thought it was incredibly impressive to see that Tom Moody who back in 1990 hit a 36-ball ton for Glamorgan in the county championship that survived as the quickest for 28 years mm. until Martin Guptill broke it by a single ball in a 2020 so um, yes credit, credit to Tom Moody that innings had some resilience it would so, be worth it from the archives I wonder what the I'll have to dig that out would yeah. it be something extraordinary well, actually, I have to say, you know, huge credit must go to the the organisers because it's a beautifully maintained website, and they have lots of they have a little pen pick of kind of every innings that's won it, and I'm sure for both of us there was some wonderful from the archive mm. sources there. Um, so, what what happens today if you're a proud Sir Walter Lawrence winner? Well, you get a cheque for two thousand five hundred pounds, you get a magnum of Vaucli Co, and on top of that, you get what I can say from looking at the pictures looks like a very enjoyable slap up dinner at Lords. And in another sign, I guess, of the award moving with the times, there's now a women's award, a university's award, and a school award, which suggests again that it's trying to better reflect the, the kind of the, the, the full breadth of the game. One quirk I really like is that the award has a panel of adjudicators with such luminaries as Mike Atherton and David Gower. And you, you might wonder, well, why is this needed, given that it appears to be an award that just requires counting? But it's actually for a very specific purpose, which is that you're not allowed to win the award if the runs were scored via declaration bowling. Right. So, if, you know, so a bit like, you know, you're from the archives a few weeks yep. ago with uh, uh, Mr. Vance. You've got someone, if someone's just sort of tossing up kind of hittable bowling, that's not acceptable for... For winning this Sir Walter Lawrence Award, I was wondering that about Tom Moody and his 36 ball ton for Glamorgan, but there you go. It obviously, obviously wasn't. Well, yes, presuming presuming the adjudicators did their job right. Um, so I, I think I, I wondered looking at this. I thought perhaps the one thing the award is missing today is I thought it'd be really fun to have a live league table, which is my suggestion to the organisers. Wouldn't it be fun to have you know at one point in the season who is the current incumbent? Um, but uh, Sir Walter Lawrence's mad generous idea has survived, and I think it looks pretty likely to survive through to its own century in twenty thirty four. 
to the review and for this episode we've been listening to how's that for hollywood uh, it was first released on bbc radio 4 in 2017 and is now available on bbc sounds it's presented by jim carter who's an actor who's played many many parts um, but is perhaps best known internationally as the butler mr carson in downton abbey It's a 30-minute radio documentary that tells the story of the heyday of the Hollywood Cricket Club when the great British actors of the era took to the field. Now, there's one actor who stands apart in this series, isn't there? Charles Aubrey Smith. But before we get to Charles Aubrey Smith, have you ever watched Downton Abbey? I haven't, no. No. So it's apparently all the rage. There's a new film out. Maybe we should get into it and review it on the podcast. I bet it's the kind of place where they play cricket on their kind of... Maybe on their kind of weekend, you know parties or something anyway Charles Aubrey Smith is the kind of fellow who would appear in Downton Abbey and he's the kind of central um, character in this in this story I'd never actually heard of him before listening to this uh, how's that for for Hollywood Um, he played cricket for Cambridge and Sussex he then went on to captain England in the first ever test in South Africa he took for five for 19 with the ball and then never played um, international cricket again. Why I'm not sure, and that would be something we should we should investigate for another for another episode. His, he he then went on to um, be, just, well, he decided he wanted to become an actor. His family were absolutely kind of horrified by this, um, but he went on to become you know according to the podcast again. I know him neither as a, a cricketer nor as an actor, a relatively successful uh, actor who kind of personified. Um, Englishman, Englishness, and he was really kind of the driving force behind the the Hollywood Club founding it um, in 1932 when he was kind of fairly fairly far on in in life. He certainly I think wasn't. He was the same. 69 at this point, yeah, which he certainly I think wasn't taking on the South Africans anymore. You know, it was yeah. a while after. Well, he seems to have had a unique ability, which I think all of us who've played in cricket teams at any recreational level know is vital for a captain, at just corralling players into into getting out in the field. That There's stories of him um, really harassing players to get down to nets practice. And if you were a British actor in Hollywood at the time and you got the message from Aubrey Smith to play, um, I, think, I think you played. Um, we ne- with this, I don't. I haven't seen any footage of him bowling, but apparently he had a very distinct action that led to the memorable nickname "Round the Corner" because I think he used to disappear behind the umpire and then reappear, so and then leap out and take the take take the batsman by by surprise. It's interesting. You talk about this kind of sense of anyone, any Englishman, you know, landing in in Hollywood being sort of corralled into the into the Hollywood Cricket Club. Um, there is quite an amazing kind of cast of. of of uh, players, of actors, of all, all sorts who are sort of mentioned as part of this, as part of this radio show. There's David Niven, there's Errol Flynn, um, obviously not not an Englishman, but from another great cricketing nation. Um, Boris Karloff, C.B. Fry, P.G. Woodhouse, and they all kind of sort of flit in and flit out of this um, of this story. It was clearly quite an astonishing time. There's an amazing anecdote about Elizabeth Taylor making the tease at some point, which is not something that I would ever. You know, you, you, you sort of struggle, struggle to picture to picture that. Um, so it's kind of a very sort of um, sort of uh, varied story. How do you feel it kind of comes across in this half hour documentary? So, so half an hour isn't long. And in some ways, it's, it's more a sort of um, a kind of collage of little bits than it is as a whole story. I, I, I think it might have benefited from a more traditional 
just chronological retelling like just tell us the story how was the club founded how did it evolve um i think by jumping around so much it leaves you slightly unclear of how it all came together um there is also a a, a minor gripe of mine that i think you know radio production and podcast production has moved on staggeringly it's wonderful how the various ways we can tell stories but i think sometimes people get carried away with these toys i don't know for example whether we need um the sounds of jim carter listening to seagulls in hove and, and sort of i thought of that was very yeah. you're you're a man of no heart i thought that was very very evocative before, yeah. very evocative personally um but i think yeah i think i think i mean i think the one of the issues is that you're trying to with this is you're trying not only to, to tell a story you're also trying to sort of paint a picture of a different time and so there's a lot of kind of sound grabs of of you know those kind of um you know those string orchestras playing schmaltzy kind of hollywood type type music in the in the background and you're right that at times it does end up um as something slightly less than the the sum of its parts because of the amount that it tries to um that it tries to fit in but it was a what I did. Uh, it was it was a real education to me. Was this I had not been aware of this period that gets referred to as the sort of Hollywood Raj. Mm. This idea that British actors were so dominant in Hollywood that really people wanted Aubrey Smith, Nivens, etc. That was who you wanted. And I think it was an era that came to an end because you then <laughs> you then went on to the Brandos and Kerry Grants, etc. And you know the, the the Brits had their day at that point. But for this period, they really kind of reigned supreme. And and, and all I, of those English people trying to prove their Englishness while they were there, and therefore the whole you know reason for wanting to go out and you know kind of flaunt mm. their cricketing prowess or well, otherwise. And I'm sure you know that this is a story that I'm sure has been told in bits or uh, countries all over the world that actually these sort of little English cricketing outposts in mm. other countries tend to become almost sort of hyper English or hyper yes. British. You know, you, you have the picture here with the traditional tea and the Union Jack flag, and because you are in a foreign setting, you take your own sort of national identity to a to a whole new level. Um, you mentioned- there was a wonderful detail, wasn't there, which you, you picked up on about the fact that this is sort of, in an interesting way, come full circle in Silicon yeah, Valley. Yeah, and the fact there's a, there's a mention at the end that, you know, with, with Silicon Valley and the number of, particularly the number of kind of people working in tech coming from the subcontinent, that um, Apple and Google all have their own cricket teams to kind of, you know, increase employee engagement or whatever metric it is that they use um and so you again there's this kind of sense of a a, a sort of a a thriving culture of um kind of cricket uh on a kind of expat basis um there um there again i think talk talking of the kind of personification of englishman englishness um i did absolutely love the uh clip of laurence olivier talking about his you know dream when he was a school you know he used apparently rubbish cricketer used to dream about you know going out onto the pitch and playing the vital innings and then the senior prefect kind of calling him up and giving him the medal or whatever it was for his you know sterling contribution and then in reality all that gets happened is that he um he's he's bowled out by douglas barter which i then looked up and apparently did actually happen yeah douglas barter bowled out Lawrence olivier and douglas barter claims because apparently Lawrence olivier was a kind of a bit of a bully douglas barter claims that Lawrence olivier then kind of after the game took him into the pavilion toilets and, and beat him up and you know etc etc so um there you go it, he does have also a completely remarkable voice it's one of those clips where yes. you're, you're so glad these things survive to give you a sense of sort of the, these voices of the past 
Um, yeah, my, my sort of other bizarre detail here was that Bradman and the Australians had toured in the US for a couple of months. And it does give you an idea of these just different time pressures and I guess a kind of gentler era where, where a sort of kind of fun promotional tour like that was possible. And well, he played against Hollywood CC. It, it is, and, it, and, and it's an interesting um, kind of coincidence because the book that we reviewed, um, David Frith's book about uh, Archie Jackson that we reviewed either last episode or the episode before, I can't remember which, actually makes mention of that tour. So you obviously weren't reading it in terrible detail, um, Andy. But the 1932 tour, which which Bradman um, goes on after his honeymoon, he gets married just before and they go over to America and Archie Jackson really wants to go but, but misses it because of his... Um, his ill health but it is suddenly this kind of amazing kind of clashing of two different worlds and suddenly you get the glamour of Hollywood combined with the kind of very sort of almost dour approach to both cricket and life mm-hmm. that, that Don Badman had as well and it's a yeah a- amazing moment in history and and yeah this is how memory works i need to read this thing in one book then hear it on a radio show in another and if that happens enough you know 10 times i'll i'll eventually remember it um i mean i think in some that this is a a fairly slight sort of radio show i mean it's 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 perfectly fun and i also say look you know always credit for the bbc for making these things that are a little bit off the wall and telling stories know, that others wouldn't yeah and and i mean they're um on BBC Sounds, there is, as we've enjoyed before, you know, there is increasingly a pretty, pretty nice archive of yeah. cricket stuff. So I, I, we we wouldn't say this is a sort of um, transformational piece of cricket history, but it's it's, it's a, a a pleasant uh, enough way to pass um, half an hour. So that is uh, how's that for Hollywood, and that was the 152nd episode of Reverse Swept Radio. <laughs>